0: the addiction podcast point of no return brought to you by Narcanon suncoast hello everybody and welcome to the addiction podcast point of no return my name is joni siegel and i will be your hostess for today on today's podcast Since some of you may not listen to the very end of the podcast, I'm going to start saying this at the beginning as well. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you can rate us five stars, that would be awesome. It helps a lot, and it gets the word out more about the podcast, and the more the word gets out, the more people listen, which means the more people get the message of hope, that there is hope, and that there is help available. So subscribe and give us five stars. For today's episode, we have an interview with a lady named Maureen Stanton. Maureen is an award-winning nonfiction writer and author of Body Leaping Backward, Memoir of a Delinquent Girlhood, and Killer Stuff, and Tons of Money winner of the 2012 Massachusetts Book Award in nonfiction. Her essays and memoirs have been published in many literary journals, including Creative Nonfiction, Fourth Genre, The Florida Review, New England Review, and River Teeth, among others. She has received the Iowa Review Prize, the American Literary Review Prize, Pushcart Prizes, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, and Maine Arts Commission Individual Artist Fellowships. She has a Master's in Fine Arts from Ohio State University and teaches at the University of Massachusetts. Let's talk to Maureen. Maureen, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to share my story.
0: Well, and I love that you are willing to do that, because that's a lot of what we do on this podcast is share stories. And I always feel that while there are similars with every single story that we've told, because obviously it has something to do with addiction, there are also differences. And I think that those differences resonate with our listeners. And so I always appreciate it when someone is willing to come on here and tell their story. That sounds great. So I know that you have your own history of addiction. How did you get started on that path? How did you start with drugs?
1: You know, like, um, I think like many kids who are a bit rebellious, I started right in with smoking pot and drinking by the time of was 13. Um, and then continuing with that, at 15, I first smoked angel dust, which is PCP or fencyclidine. Uh, it's a class two drug in the same category as fentanyl and, and uh, oxycodone. Um, and this, <clears throat> excuse me, of course, was back in the 1970s. Um, the town was very, you know, filled with it. It was easy to get. It was cheaper than pot and it looked like pot. So I smoked it one night and it gave me a floaty feeling. And then for some reason, I just, I just continued smoking it. And I, I really uh, was kind of addicted to PCP for almost two years and, um, and a lot of p- kids in my town were as well. Uh, and there's a lot of people that think that angel dust is not called angel dust anymore. Tencyclidine or PCP is it doesn't exist anymore. But it's really quite prevalent still. Um, it just isn't really covered in the news very much because of the massive scale of the opioid crisis. Right. And also, I think, because it's um, it's primarily used from research that I did over four years. It's primarily used by minority communities and urban communities. And so it's just not getting the attention for that reason. But I myself was surprised when I started researching and writing my book. I thought angel death disappeared sometime in the 80s or even, you know, possibly early 90s. But to find out that it was really still in use, uh, now it's called wet and uh, people dip cigarettes or dip a, a joint in it. And it's much more powerful and
0: much more dangerous. Wow. You know, the fact that you were addicted for, you said, two years, right?
1: Just about two years, about,
0: yeah. You know, I, is, is, if I remember what I've read about PCP and angel dust, I mean, I believe that that is the drug that can have you, like, jumping off buildings and such. Is that correct? Am I talking about the right that thing? That is correct. So the fact yeah. that you've made it through two years is actually, you know, it's kind of amazing because I, I would have imagined that somewhere in that two years, you easily could have died. It's it's absolutely true. I think there are many um, occasions when I was either
1: driving um, with you know on angel dust or dusted as we called it, uh, or with somebody who was, or just doing something very you know very strange or odd. Um, angel dust is a dissociative anesthetic. It's literally an anesthetic. It started out for surgical use. Uh, it's analog, which is ketamine, which is a a chemical analog that's shorter acting, is still used for surgery as an anesthetic. So what's happening is you're taking an anesthetic and you can't feel your body. You don't know what your body's doing and your mind is a little bit checked out as well. Things are just unreal. They're surreal. You don't necessarily hallucinate images like with, say, acid or LSD, but Everything is very spacey and slow, and it's why people, and they are, these are true stories, have, uh, you know, uh, poked out their own eyes. I mean, I've, I've seen many, many stories uh, in a Google search I had or Google alert I had on PCP in the past four years uh, with this now stronger version of PCP, uh, fencyclidine, where people are just doing horrific horrific things harming themselves harming other people I mean there's you know certainly there are people are using it and it's not happening they're using it at a lower dose or not quite taking so much Um, I think I was very very fortunate in those two years that I didn't um, harm someone else in a a terrible lasting way or harm myself I think in a you know in a way that was debilitating so I, I feel extremely fortunate
0: well, I think, and that's the same thing I'm trying to say, and, and the thing that I've brought up before, and I've mainly talked about it with um, certain psychiatric medications, but I'm going to lump PCP in here and pretty much any drug you take, is that you're to some degree playing Russian roulette when you do that, because you yeah. don't know when you start taking PCP whether you're going to come out the other side in one piece or you're not,
1: And that, I mean, that's the thing that's terribly scary about these drugs. Um, and it's the opioids, it's the PCP, it's, you know, LSD acid. There's a lot of drugs out there that are very scary. Uh, and I know, I do know people that didn't come out the other side of it. Um, people in my hometown or, or people that had a much more difficult time with it. They ended up in a psychiatric institution. I myself went to counseling for a year. Uh, I slowly weaned off, um, so uh, I don't know whether PCP is as physiologically addictive as an opioid drug. Uh, there's never been any studies on long-term PCP use on humans, so we don't really know that. But I know how difficult it was to stop doing that drug uh, when I was 15 and 16, and then into my early 17th years when I
0: quit, wow. you know, able to finally wean off. And so, did you go? Did you do any kind of a residential rehab, or you just did counseling? I
1: just did counseling. I mean, this was back in 1975 through 77. And okay. there was a private um, rehab center in a town near me. And there were other ones. I mean, in Massachusetts, obviously, McLean's Hospital. Uh, my parents couldn't have afforded that anyway. Okay. My parents didn't know really what I was doing, they didn't know the extent of it. They were just busy doing other things. My father was kind of absentee, my mother was busy working to put food on the table after they separated. Um, and so I don't think um, I don't think they would have. I mean, that wouldn't even been an opportunity. Uh, but also, when I was smoking angel dust in 1970, in the mid 1970s, nobody, the schools and the police and the counselors, did not catch on to this uh, epidemic at the time until the late 70s, uh, late 1977. So, for example, um, I looked up newspaper accounts in the Boston Globe here in Massachusetts. And in my hometown paper, and there wasn't even a single article on kids and PCP use until 1977, and that is just when I was weaning off and quitting. Wow. So for two years, we were just under the radar. Wow. You know, people who, in positions to do something didn't know what was happening. They were, there was a lag time, and I think that probably happened with the opioid crisis as well. Wow,
0: would you could are you able to estimate like what percentage of students, like your friends, that were doing it that in your school? Do you know? Yeah. I mean, there is a study out of the University of Michigan that's done a teenage or high
1: school drug use, and they started it in 1975, and they included PCP, which isn't included actually in the 90s when they do the study um, through the 90s. Mm. And uh, it was up to like 15% of kids had tried it, which is a pretty high, um, high percentage. In my school, I would say that everybody who was smoking, say, marijuana, um, Uh, and doing other sort of, you know, say, recreational drugs or whatever, was also doing PCP. Part of the issue was that during the um, Nixon's drug war, and then it was continued on by his successors, Ford and even Carter, they were really cracking down on marijuana. And this is something I found in my research when writing the book. Um, And so it was very difficult to get straight old pot. And so this PCP came in. It didn't have to come across the Mexican border. It was made in somebody's lab at home. It was cheap to make. It was highly profitable. And, um, and so it just flooded the town. And so a lot of kids were smoking it. And these are kids from all walks of life in my town, all backgrounds. You know, my sister was a student council president, and she was smoking angel dust. Um, so it really did affect, uh, affect a lot of kids. There were some kids like me who really got stuck in it. And, uh, you know, I did have my very good friend that ended up in, a, in an institution for a while, in and out of it, um, for PCP. And every once in a while in my town, and I, I wrote about this in the book, you know, a kid would just disappear, they'd have some kind of freak out on PCP, and they'd be gone for six or eight weeks, uh, having recovered. And they come back and they were actually given tranquilizers like Thorazine. So they come back almost even spacier than they were uh, when they were on PCP. Yeah, uh, I don't think that our culture knew what to do about PCP for quite some time.
0: Interesting. Now, which book is this? You've got more than one book.
1: Uh, I just uh, published my memoir this July, it came out, it's called Body Leaping Backward, Memoir of a Delinquent Girlhood, Uh, and I mean that delinquent in both ways. One is that I, my girlhood and my coming of age was sort of slowed down and, and interfered with by doing drugs, the things I should have been learning, I wasn't learning, but also that because I was doing drugs, I was also doing a lot of, you know, bad behavior, like stealing and, you know, vandalism, I mean, I just was really, I just really lost myself, um, I come from, you know, a Catholic girl with you know, very moral upbringing, but, but I just really lost myself, uh, and I was doing things that, you know, I'm very ashamed of. It was hard to face that shame in writing the book, but it was also very useful to do so, um, to come, come out and just say that, and say this, this, you know, people who know me now would never know that that was my background, and I think that was important for me to speak out about it. I think
0: I think it's very brave. I think it's very courageous. And I also think it's extremely necessary. Because, you know, we talk a lot in the podcast about the stigma attached to addiction. And I think the more we stigmatize addiction, the less people want to get helped, and the less people want to even admit that they need help. And I think so I I applaud you for doing that. And also, um, Jason, who is my co-host, who's a former addict, he's mentioned many times that typically when young people get started on drugs, whether it's PCP or heroin or alcohol or marijuana or whatever, whatever that drug is ends up being for them, they do they lose out on a lot of the life skills that uh, that others learn in high school through their teenage years.
1: It's really true. It, is, it not only held me back academically, I almost failed my junior year and I, I don't even know how I got in college. My grades were so poor. But um, but there's other things about forming healthy relationships, having self-confidence, figuring yep. out who I am. All those things were just, you know, they, they just didn't happen and I had a lot of catching up to do. And when I did get to college, I, I did begin to realize how far behind I was. And even... 15 years later, when I went to graduate school, I also was like, wow, there's so much I don't know because I never, I wasn't in school. I wasn't paying attention. There were other things going on in my life, just trying to get my life in order. So I wasn't able to sort of, you know, start the track that you start when you're in high school, which is figuring out who you are, where your passions lie, what excites you in the world, how you envision your life. And, uh, you know, it's really all about, you know, your identity. So you know that was a, that was definitely delinquent, um, but also I just I was very ashamed. I really appreciate what you said about Jason. It was it took me a long time to write the book, and I didn't even start it till 2014 because my dad had passed away, mm. and my parents did not know what was going on because, like everybody else in our town, they were just unaware of this drug. I think they thought I was probably drinking, maybe smoking pot. My mother was very busy working, you know, working extra shifts. My father was coming over Wednesdays and Fridays with the divorce decree. So he was we had seven kids in my family. It was very easy for me to sneak through hmm. and to lie and to just cover things up. Um and so they, you know, they just didn't know. And um and so I didn't I didn't want him to feel bad. And I just I would have been writing this for probably forty years. I started writing it in college, but I just kept putting it aside both because I was very ashamed and I didn't want to uh, to have my father be, you know, to feel guilty yeah, But now that I've written it, <laughs> now that I've written and told the story, I cannot believe the people that are writing to me and coming up to me after readings. And some of these people are from my hometown because I wrote it about my hometown. And some are perfect strangers or people I like former students I had. And they're saying, oh, this happened to me. This was in my family. My yep. sister did this. My brother, you know, it's still going on. Now they're involved with this. And it's, none of us knew, nobody knew, you know, at the time that all this people were struggling. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that today people are more willing to talk about it and there are opportunities
0: for people to talk about it, like this podcast. Right. Well, thank you. But also, even if people knew, they didn't want to talk about it. You didn't talk about it. You didn't go, you know, my daughter's got a drug problem or my son has a drug problem. You know, there's, there's and I think even still today, there's a tendency to want to like kind of hush it up and nobody really talk about it. And that doesn't help the person that needs help. Do you know, if you yeah, can't talk yeah. about it, and they can't talk about it, and it—it's basically just not being confronted.
1: I think it's true, and if it, I mean, I'm judge, judging by the number of people, I've been really surprised who have, you know, Facebook messaged me or written to me through my website or come up to me after a reading and just said and told me their story. Yeah. And I think it's the first time they have told people. And sometimes it's them, sometimes a the family member. And I think there's just something about when one person says, "Okay, I'm going to make myself be vulnerable, I'm going to share this part of myself in my past that I'm a bit ashamed about and embarrassed about." it just makes it okay for other people to say, "You know what this, this is normal. This happens to us. this happens in our families, and there's a way out of it, and we have to talk about it to find that way out of it. Um, and I, I just feel that, you know if there's anything that comes from this book, if it simply you know helps people. Uh, recognize someone or if it makes them feel like, oh, I'm not alone or this is my story too, then then that's just the best thing I could ask of it, you know, to, to really connect with people in that way and, you know, possibly maybe even help somebody in some way. I mean, that, that would be so rewarding to me.
0: I'm fairly certain that you are doing that without question. In fact, I, I know you are for certain. But I have a question Cause because we named this podcast The Point of No Return because one of the things I wanted to explore with the people that we spoke to is what occurred that made you realize you had a problem and you needed to do something about it
1: yeah that's i think it's a really really good question um for me it was kind of a convergence of a couple different things um and some of them were just fate and some of them were my own sort of feeling and so one is that uh my friends uh who i was hanging out these are my drug cohort friends and all we were doing is doing drugs we didn't even have any conversation or anything and then my boyfriend, at the same time, they kind of had a, not a falling out, but they, they seemed to not like me anymore, and they kind of stopped calling me, and I found myself friendless, and then my boyfriend did break up with me. And that, you know, separating yourself from the people that are doing drugs, that actually ended up helping. Um, but at the same time, I was falling more and more into just a sense of despair and self-loathing. I mean, I felt like I had my journal and my diaries from the time. I just... I felt like I didn't know who I was. The I was shame of what I was doing, like, say, stealing money, um, putting my little siblings in jeopardy by the people I was bringing into my house, my parents' house, um, you know, driving recklessly in a way that might harm other people. Every day doing these things, I didn't know who I was. I didn't like myself. I didn't like my friends. I didn't like my life. I was completely and utterly lost, and I remember one night... Uh, after being out with my friends and just getting high and dusted and driving around, I came down and I, my sister, my older sister was in her room with her boyfriend watching TV and I just sobbed in front of them. And it's nothing I would ever do because I would be embarrassed in front of her boyfriend. But I said, you know, I said, I hate myself. I hate my life. I hate my friends. And so just that was the first thing I did. But even after that, I just, I didn't have any friends. So I kept having to try and hang out with these friends. But eventually I, I felt so... I'm not sure if I would call it a depression. It may have been, you know, falling into a depression, but it really felt like just despair, like existential despair. And I was, I think, 17. I I asked my mother if I could see a counselor. She had taken me to a counselor when I was, I think, 14. She noticed I was having some, you know, maybe mood swings and just, you know, depression and crying a lot. Uh, And so, I, you know, I knew that counseling was available because of that and because of my parents went to marriage counseling. And so I just went to her and I said, can I see a counselor? She didn't ask why. She didn't ask anything. She just arranged for me to see a counselor. So I did see, um, it turns out it was their marriage counselor, and I saw him once a week uh, after work. I was working full-time in my senior year of high school, and I paid with my own money, and and it was something that I felt like I needed to do um, to pay. I had to pay for my own counseling because I felt so bad and guilty for all that I'd done that harmed other people. so I was working at a gas station, pumping gas about 35 hours a week. <laughs> it was a work-study job. And, uh, and on Thursday nights, my boss let me leave early. He knew what I, where I was going. He was very understanding. And uh, I would go, and I would sit and talk to a stranger, complete stranger. And he, you know, I don't actually remember a lot of what we talked about, but he, he did ask me every week, did you, you know, did you smoke angel dust? It forced me to confront what I had done. And then he helped me figure out why I had done that. Still, why am I still doing this? Um, so over the course of a year, I was able to slowly wean off um, angel dust. And again, separating from friends who were doing the drug helped, you know, enormously. Right. Um, yeah. So that, that just having that separation, those cohorts, you know, not in my life anymore. And they ended up, you know, desisting too, at some point, you know, we Teenagers grow up, and a lot of teenagers will just age out of their bad behavior, although drug dependency is something different. Um, But, you know, part of it was that I
0: was also just growing up. Just a reminder that you are listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For further information on the podcast, you can go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or you can find us on our Facebook page by the same name, or you can call us at 727-314-7080, or you can email us to theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. For further information on Narcan on Suncoast, call one eight seven seven three three nine three three two four. 339 3324 That's one 339 3324 Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call one 833 918 0008 today and say the word podcast and get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com that's n e w m a n i n t e r v e n t i o n s.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount this service comes with a free 1-hour consultation with bobby Interesting. I just kind of want to draw a parallel. One of my frames of reference um, in terms of treatment is Narconon because my co-host works for Narconon. And Narconon is a residential drug treatment facility. But one of the things that to me sets Narconon aside is that Before you're done with the program, yes, you've stopped taking drugs and you've done the sauna program and sweated it out of your fat tissues and all of that, but one of the things that you have to do before you're done, first of all, is to look at the people that you you know you've been you've surrounded yourself with and determine who are your friends like your family who really do love you and maybe not so much a friend like the people who supply you with drugs that's one of the key things but the other key thing is you have to arrive at the problem for which drugs became the solution which is what it sounds like this counselor kept asking you okay so you took the drugs what happened why did you do that what was going on and that's Kind of a key that I think so often we try and put like just a band aid on a hemorrhage, you know, and and, and never you know give somebody twenty eight days and hope they're clean and never get to the root of the problem.
1: Yeah, that's I think that's really smart. Um, one one of the things he did soon after we started seeing each other is he began to ask me how I felt about my parents' divorce, and <clears throat> in my family, when my parents we were very close all the kids, you know, I was third out of seven. uh, And when they told us they were getting divorced, it took us by surprise. And my father was really became absent from my life. And I had been very close with him. And but we never talked about it after that. We just went on with school. My mother went back to school to get a nursing degree. She went back to work. You know, there was never any family discussion about that. And so four years later, I was 12 when they separated when I'm in his office, and he's seeing counseling, trying to get help. I'm in mean, this terrible state, smoking this drug a lot. Uh, my friend was dealing it, so we had free—you know—we had a free. We could smoke it whenever we wanted. We smoked it in school, in class. I mean, it was you know crazy, and feeling so despairing. And he said, "How do you feel about your parents' divorce?" And I cried for half an hour. Yep. I think it might have been the first time I cried about that for years. And. So, we worked on that as well. We worked on my identity crisis. We worked on you know, becoming the middle of a family of seven. We worked on things that I, I was really struggling with psychologically uh, that might have been at the root of me wanting to self medicate and numb myself. Right. I mean, when I think back on smoking angel dust, I think it's an anesthetic. Yep. And I was, that, how, how more metaphorical can you get than numbing myself? And it's a disassociative anesthetic. So, I was disassociating myself from myself. And that was clearly just a way to medicate, you know, the pain I was in. Uh, as, a, as a person who was very sad, very emotional, I'm a very emotional, feeling sensitive person, and feeling very sad about um, this big life event, and you know, that's fairly common now, uh, and not knowing what to do about it and how to talk about it. Um, so, yeah, so the psychological underpinnings were really important to work through that.
0: Exactly, exactly. And... Tell me, I think you said this already, but I don't remember, but tell me again. So how long was the process of stepping down the drugs and the whole counseling? How long did you do that?
1: I was in counseling for a year. And then, uh, so in that course that year, I I slowed down the amount of uh, the drug I was doing. uh, And then I finally was able to stop doing it. But it's, you know, coming out of a... You know, a drug use habit is not as clean. I did stop using angel dust, but of course, when crystal meth came into town, cocaine was around. We're entering into the 1980s, which was a big cocaine era, and so I did go back to some of that. And I'd say I probably really didn't stop doing all drugs until, you know, maybe I was 21 or 22 when I was my final year of college, and I began to get really serious about my intellectual and artistic pursuits and not hanging around. I mean, a lot of times you go to college and there's a lot of kids that didn't do drugs, and now they're going crazy, you know, because yeah. they have all this freedom and everybody's partying. Part of me was like, I've done that; I'm sick of that. But the other part was like, it's what people were doing, so you fall back into it. Right. Um, so I did quit the dust, but I—it I, took me a while to sort of just, you know, say no to all, you know, really harmful substances. Right. What is your art form? I, you know, I'm a creative writer, so I, okay. um, I teach creative writing. Um, I write, I have another book out, I, wrote, I write essays, I write personal narratives, I teach memoir. Um, so that, you know, and I knew that I was a writer for a long time, even in high school, I was writing, but I just didn't know how to shape that into a passion or how to follow that. Um, so it took, me, it took me a while. My first book came out when I was 49. So, you yeah. know, I'm a late bloomer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I apologize, it was a bit of a stupid question. Obviously, I know you're a writer. And um, you've written two books now, though right?
1: yeah, this is my my memoir, my second book, yeah,
0: yep. Tell me about the first one, Killer Stuff and Tons of Money, yeah. Oh, yeah, funny
1: title. It's um, the first one is, in fact, I started writing this one about my angel dust. And then this other story idea about flea markets came along. And I quickly just pushed aside the story of, of my, you know, my youth. And that was a good excuse for doing that. Because again, I was ashamed to write that. So this for this one, it was you know it's sort of like immersion journalism where I followed around this, I call him an uh, itinerant antique dealer, and he literally loads up his pickup truck with $30,000 worth of antiques and he goes to all these various outdoor antique and flea markets where he both buys and sells goods. So I had a chance to go with him and get behind the scenes of this because I always liked to hang around at flea markets stuff thought they were fun for sort a of little cultural, you know, kind of a subculture of, you know, materialism and stuff. So I got a chance to go with him and hang out and be on the other side of it. And it was fascinating. And I thought I'd write an article. And then it just kept finding more and more interesting things. I went with him to an auction. I went on the set of Antiques Roadshow. just going you know, I really <laughs> was just looking into the whole subculture <laughs> of people who make their living selling history. And they're yeah. autodidacts. They, they're self-taught. They're passionate. They're a little crazy. They're obsessed. They're colorful. Uh, this was before American Picker. I was working on this book. So, okay. Um, yeah, it was a real fun book to write. It was exhausting, but it was fun to write. This one was definitely more emotional and, and challenging in that way.
0: Right, right. When did you, oh, that book, is, is, it, is it out now, the new one? Uh, the new one is out. It came out okay. in July, um, okay. and it's been doing pretty well. It's, it's, like I said, I'm getting lots of,
1: the most rewarding thing is I'm getting lots of letters from people, but it was in People Magazine as a in July as a best new book pick, um, and they said it was, uh, you know, in a really important mem- memoir for the, um, for the, about the possibility of change. So they recognize that my story is one where, um, you know, where there's an ending that's that com- where I come out more healthy. Yes. Uh, so I'm glad that they recognize that. I'm yeah. happy to be
0: um, you know, listed there. I think that's awesome. I'm going to say the name of the book again for our listeners. It's called Body Leaping Backward, Memoir of a Delinquent Girlhood. Is it on Amazon?
1: It's on Amazon. It's and if there's an audio book, there's an ebook. You can get it through, um, you know, Apple Books. I mean, it's, you know, it's really in every form. Um, and if you go to my website, you can you can click on it, and I've got even things I've never heard of, like Kobe. I mean, there's places that people are getting books now that I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not up to that technologically, but. It's really in any every form, and you know, audio. Like I say, a lot of people are reading, uh, listening to books now because they they can do it when they're driving. And then there's an e-book, which they can get it right away. And then there's the hardcover, so people that like to hold a book in their hands.
0: So. Understood. How has your family reacted to your story? How how much of the did they know yeah, when you were young? Good
1: well, it's interesting, because my, well, my dad passed away, and that's what sort of liberated me to sort of finally go, okay, I can get this book out there now, I can write it, I can try and get it published. Right. My mother is uh, in her early 80s, and she's she's funny, she's always been really proud of my writing, it doesn't matter what I write, she's just as proud of it, mm-hmm. um, but she said, I said, Mom, are you enjoying the book? And she... Yeah, you know, she's like, well, it's kind of hard to read a small print, and then I fall asleep. So I don't think she's actually <laughs> finished reading it, but I did interview her for the book, and she knew I was writing it. With my siblings, I did give them the manuscript, and I said, you have veto power over anything you don't want in here. And they did not exclude anything. Wow. They have been really supportive. I think they really understand that this was, like, because some of my siblings struggled like I did. There are about two of us, but my brother and my sister who really struggled in high school years, and the others were fine. So... Part of it is my personality. You know, I was a rebellious kid. I was outspoken. I was the big mouth, the one that said things that nobody wanted to hear. Right. So that, you know, is part of why I did what I did. It just was part partly my personality. And some other of my siblings were just more dutiful and good and, you know, took better care of themselves, <laughs> you know. Uh, but there are three of us out of seven who I think really did a lot of drugs and struggled. Um, so they were very, they've always been very supportive, but they were really supportive. I did expect, like, people calling me saying, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. But they didn't they just you know and they're proud of it and they're out there telling everyone about it so i'm I'm just really you know so grateful to them for their support
0: that's awesome do you have children of your own
1: i don't have children okay. no i just um just curious have an opportunity just you know your life goes in certain ways and yes. suddenly it's like oh okay
0: <laughs> oops didn't do that <laughs> that's not gonna happen
1: i have 10 <laughs> nieces
0: and nephews who i adore okay i was just curious um, so one of the things I like to do, uh, as we get kind of to the end of the interview and you, obviously you can talk as long as you would like to, but I always like to ask if you had one message that you could give to all of our listeners, what would that be? What would you want to tell them? Yeah, I think, um, I think there's sort of two audiences I want to address. One is,
1: one is kids and teenagers and, and especially teenage girls. And one is you know, any adult who comes in contact with teenagers and that's parents and social workers and teachers and police and anybody, um, athletic directors, for the kids, I just want to say for any kid who's feeling lonely, alienated, sad, awkward, confused, self-conscious, ask for help. You don't have to solve any problem, problems yourself. You ask for help. No one's expecting, you know, to, to, to solve it, you know, just reach out for help. And, but I, what I want to tell the adults Make sure the help is there. Right. You know. Make sure that you're not ignoring signs of a kid that's, you know, seems to be falling. I mean, you know, when when I was going through this, I I missed 40 days of school, just about 40 one year, and the school never called my parents. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, there were six guidance counselors in my school. I never saw one of them. Why weren't they catching these kids who were falling through the cracks and missing school and showing up stoned and falling falling down in the hallways? You know, because um, they're so wasted. So. Uh, I want to tell kids to, to ask if they're feeling funny in any way, you know, if they're feeling awkward, if they're doing something, uh, you know, reach out for help. And maybe it's not their parents, maybe it's somebody else. Yep. But the, for parents and adults, you know, have support programs,
0: pay attention to signs, reach towards a, a kid that looks like they're struggling. Yep. So, That's awesome. That is just awesome. And it's a great message. Maureen, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. And I'm going to mention your book one more time. It's called Body Leaping Backward, Memoir of a Delinquent Girlhood. You can get it on Amazon. And Maureen also has her own website, which is maureenstantonwriter.com. And it's M a u r e e n S t a n t o n w r i t e r dot com so reach out to Maureen and get her book and thank you again, Maureen. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, there you go. That was a great interview with Maureen Stanton, a former drug user and recovered and an author and has just published her own story. And it took her a little while to do that. Um, But I think her story, I'm hoping, will resonate with somebody listening. And she has a couple of very good messages at the end of the interview. Once again, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And please give us a five-star rating where you can because we want the podcast to reach so many more people. And when you do that, it helps us reach more people. And I think if we reach more people, that means more people that will reach out for help and know that there is hope. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be with you again next week.